Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. These days, it's hard to open a newspaper or turn on the TV without hearing about the outcome of a criminal court case. In the USA, things are even more intense, with some courts allowing TV cameras into the courtroom, giving the world a blow-by-blow account of proceedings. On our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one first-degree murder guilty. So we think we know how the justice system works, how it grapples with issues and applies the law. But there's a huge area of the law that most of the UK knows nothing about. Courts that decide on massive decisions that have really big ramifications on people's lives. And yet, we hear nothing. Why? Because journalists, more often than not, are not allowed to report. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. I am Louise Tickle, and I'm a freelance journalist writing on education and social affairs. Louise Tickle is a journalist with a beat. Ask anyone in the sector and they'll know who she is, because Louise is one of a handful of tenacious reporters trying, and sometimes failing, to report from the family courts. I've done loads of nice simple feature stories. You know, I've been doing this for 17 years, and... When I came back to work after having my second child, I was so knackered and so exhausted and run down. And it kind of felt like, what was the point of just doing the same old stuff that I'd been doing before? I kind of felt like I had to make a step change to make it worth the, you know, the time, the tiredness and all of that. And Louise was working as a freelancer. And that comes with its own challenges. As a freelancer, it is hard. I have got a lot of support partly through being a freelancer because people know that you don't have that institutional wraparound support helping you so in one sense I perhaps get more than I might otherwise also I can make my own decisions about what I do yes often those decisions might not end up with me being paid very well for them but it keeps me really interested and I am kind of compelled to do this family law work you know I've done a lot of work on domestic abuse and that has a good crossover I did quite a bit of work on child sexual exploitation and that has some crossover, but it kind of brings the whole state power thing in. And also, as a journalist, you're always looking for those areas of public life which no one reports on and no one reports on family law really in depth because you're not allowed to. Reporting stories from the family courts is hard. For good reason. There are strict rules on anonymity. 
These are the courts where judges rule on things like child protection issues, where children are taken from parents into care, where custody battles are waged. But that cautious attitude has developed into a blunter approach, with some judges demanding total reporting restrictions on cases. And that can be worrying, because it means we have no idea if and how justice is being done. And for those who feel like it isn't, there's little recourse or scrutiny of those life-changing rulings. The restrictions are contained in two laws. One is Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act 1960, and the other one is in the Children Act 1989. And taken together, those two laws basically mean that you can report nothing of what goes on that's of interest that would show you the process. And they've come about because people are understandably extremely concerned that some of the most vulnerable children in society's privacy is not breached. They are even more concerned now that details are on the internet forevermore and because they know that bullying can be dangerous to children. These children are highly vulnerable. They've gone through often really horrific abuse and neglect to the point that the state has thought fit in some cases to remove them from their families and in other situations you know if you have a family conflict where a mum and a dad are desperately trying for the their child not to see the other one that's also really damaging who wants your friends or neighbours to know about that so there are good reasons really good reasons for privacy the problem is that there are also really good reasons for open justice because when the state makes such huge intrusions into people's lives in you know, to all intents and purposes, is in secret. People can bleat on about it being it's private, not secret, and I'm so sick of hearing that, because effectively it is secret. It is as secret as when, you know, there's a national security situation and a judge is asked to close the courts so that there can be no reporting. Um, but they're two very compelling, competing pressures, and that's what's so difficult, because they both have enormous validity. The problem I see is that there are a few judges who do publish judgments in cases which they are particularly exercised about. There are some. And I see horrific human rights abuses happening to the point where, you know, quite significant damages are being paid. That's quite a big thing for a court to award. Doesn't happen unless something's really egregiously gone wrong. <laughs> and you know that those families and those children's lives have been very seriously damaged by the state and that's not damage that they will recover from easily if at all. Then there are added complications. Social workers are incredibly reluctant to talk to journalists and that's kind of understandable. Often the only stories we hear of their work are when things go terribly terribly wrong like the baby P case or Victoria Klimbe. So it's almost impossible for journalists to hear different sides of the story. And that can be really problematic. You might remember the controversy surrounding a story written by Times journalist Andrew Norfolk. In mid-2017, an article appeared on the Times front page claiming a five-year-old white Christian child had been placed with foster parents who were strict practising Muslims who barely spoke English. The report suggested the child was unhappy and had had a crucifix taken away from her and was refused her favourite meal because it contained pork. The reporting was apparently based on leaked documents from someone close to the child's birth family. However, it soon turned out the true picture was far more complex. The crucifix was an expensive piece of jewellery and had been taken into safekeeping. The food was refused because it had fallen on the floor. 
And yes, the child was upset to leave visits with its birth mother, but then almost all children are. The day after the story hit the headlines, the case was in court, and the judge took the highly unusual step of allowing some of the details to be published, ostensibly to counter the errors in the first story. The child, it turned out, had been taken into emergency care because her mother had serious substance abuse issues, and she had Muslim grandparents who she was now going to live with. The story was criticised for having Islamophobic undertones, and the independent press standards organisation upheld a complaint against the Times with regard to their reporting on the court case. So, these stories are really tricky, and the people getting in touch with journalists often have just one side of the story. Emotions are high, people are angry. In that context, it can be hard to get to the truth. And so, for Louise, who's known for writing on these kinds of areas, that means she often finds herself having to turn people down. The number of people who now approach me who have had what they tell me is terrible experiences of family courts intervening in their their lives, and whether that's through, you know, the state trying to take their children into care or having their children adopted, or whether it's family separation where parents are you know, in huge dispute, often intractable disputes over years about access to their children, whether it's victims, almost always women, but not entirely, saying that they are really worried for the safety of their children. It is a daily thing. I feel sort of assailed by it and I can do almost nothing. That is the really painful bit. People literally going, I am begging you for help and I can't help. Every day Louise opens her emails to read stories from parents begging her for help, suggesting things have gone badly wrong and their children have been taken away unfairly. But many are worried that by talking out they could annoy social services further, or if there's been a court order, then they could be breaching the legal rules and be held in contempt of court. So there's no way to tell their stories. Louise can do nothing more than wait, Wait for the few and far between court cases that are reportable to give a glimpse into what is happening. Cases like this one. Social services are looking into the case of two twins who at four years old are taken into care alongside their older siblings. There's evidence of domestic abuse, alcohol abuse, poor home conditions, developmental delay evident in all of the children and poor physical care afforded to the children. It's a tragic case. The two twins are initially placed in foster care. Then a team manager at the local authority makes a decision to separate them and put them up for adoption. Normally speaking, any professional would make huge efforts to place twins together. Enormous. I mean, they would go above and beyond. And Herefordshire, through various horrific failures of process, and in one case, a a decision made by somebody without even bothering to document it, decided to look for adoptive parents for these children separately. Remarkably, there's no paper report about that decision to split the twins up. It was only ever talked about. All of this is highly unusual. The two children were separated and adopted by different families. The adoption proceedings started to go through the courts, but it was only then that a judge happened to notice that the two children were related, but had been split up. In 2018, a High Court judge ruled on the case. He found that the local authority's social services team had breached the human rights of both the twins and their new adoptive parents. 
those abuses were, quote, both systematic and the fault of individual social workers, team managers and line managers, said the judge. It is almost impossible to imagine the circumstances in which it would be considered appropriate to separate twins and place them for adoption by different prospective adopters, he added. The twins were eight by the time of the court case, and the judge decided they should remain with their separate adopted families, that wrenching them away could cause yet more anguish. It was a heartbreaking case, and one that Louise only happened to come across because of the High Court decision. So she was able to report that story, but only years after the issues had happened, and only because it was heard in a high court with a judge who didn't apply draconian reporting restrictions. But that doesn't solve what to do with all those emails she keeps getting, begging her for help, from people who can see no other way out. How do you deal with those? I've thought a lot about this. I've actually had sessions with a counsellor <laughs> about how to respond to people who approached me because the guilt is huge. Generally speaking... I try to send them back a paragraph going, thanks so much for getting in touch with me. What you've told me sounds really distressing. I'm really sorry, but because I'm a freelance and I only have certain resources, I can't get involved in you know, investigating your story. But the reasons why I can't get involved are the reasons why I also campaign for family courts to be more open so that it's not as incredibly restrictive for a journalist to try to investigate and, if necessary, hold the state to account. In fact, even by talking to Louise, some parents could be breaching the rules of the court, putting themselves in contempt. So as a journalist, that can put you in a tricky position. They will have lawyers who will have already advised them very strongly that they're not meant to be talking to people. But also, you know, as a journalist, lots of people tell you stuff that they shouldn't. I don't find that ethically difficult at all to know that they're in contempt by talking to me. I suppose I might be seen as kind of soliciting contempt if I'm interested in their story and ask them to tell me more. If they do go off and talk on social media, it's not really my responsibility to tell them not to. More after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine you're a parent, perhaps single, and an accident or illness befalls you. Incapacitated for a while, you reach out for help and the local authority's social service team tells you there's a thing called Section 20, a voluntary agreement where you, the parent, agree that the state can take care of the child temporarily until you're back on your feet. But time passes, you recuperate, and when you come to ask for your child back, you're told, no, sorry. Suddenly, it's not so voluntary. Despite the rules saying the parent can withdraw consent at any time, in many cases the local authority simply ignores this and may keep the children. If the parent kicks off, they can threaten officially taking the children into care. It can take years, even up to eight years on a Section 20 order, to try and establish what happens next to the child. A case came before the High Court where a boy had been taken from his parents aged eight and spent the next eight years in limbo on this order. The mother had repeatedly attempted to withdraw her consent and had been overridden, so effectively the state had kidnapped those two children. After eight years with foster parents, the children stayed there. Pulling together the evidence to report these stories can be almost impossible. There's often no paper court order, no judgment or paperwork. The local authority is not going to tell a journalist anything that would breach the privacy of a child in question. The parent is terrified that rocking the boat further could lead to their children being taken away permanently. So it all happens in secret. It only comes to light if there's a high court judgment, and that can be rare. In that case of the child on the Section 20 placement for eight years, the judge heard that at least 16 children had been wrongly and abusively looked after by the council under a Section 20 arrangement for wholly inappropriate periods of time. That one case opened up huge systematic issues. But if it hadn't happened, then no one would have known. Louise finds herself time and time again having to fight for the right to be allowed to report on the cases she hears about. And that can be nerve-wracking. It involves standing up in court and arguing your case. Your heart pounds, you sweat. <laughs> you never feel like you're really on your mettle. You might think that you have the case law and the arguments, but it feels like it all happens quite fast. It doesn't feel like a, a considered, careful process where it's a discussion. It, it feels very adversarial, which is also alarming a little bit. I mean, courts are an adversarial situation. Outside the court, I often go and introduce myself to the various parties, barristers, and, and they can kind of come and talk to you in what is often quite a kind of booming voice. <laughs> and this is women and men, I think the level of assertiveness that, that barristers have and the level of authority that barristers have is quite intimidating. And I'm quite, I'm quite a 
self-assured person, but I find it quite um, intimidating. But because I do, I feel quite bullshy about it. And I feel like, no, I'm not going to be squashed by this. I am going to have my say, however I manage to do it, whether it's in court on the day or whether it's by me emailing everybody later and going, I am going to make an application. It was Louise's reputation in fighting for the right to report that got her involved with a case that would change the landscape of this kind of reporting for good. A few years ago, another journalist, Melanie Newman, a former colleague of mine, was looking into the rate at which young children are taken into care when she came across a court judgment on a legal website. The details in that judgment were shocking. It told how a young girl, just two years old at the time, had been taken into care after her mother administered an EpiPen on her, fearing she was having an allergic reaction. It was the second time the mother had done so in seven months. Social services had thought that that was a huge overreaction and was concerned for the girl's safety, so they started proceedings to take her into care. She was sent to live with a foster family. Two years later, after trying several different options, the council decided the girl should be permanently adopted. But the mother fought back. She scraped together the money to take the council to court. There, three judges said the decision to put her up for adoption was based on the slimmest of evidence. They overturned the adoption placement order and said the case should be reheard. Now that case was coming before the courts again, and Melanie wanted to be able to report what happened next. Cue Louise. I was in Brittany, and we were driving into a little town to get some bread, I think, with the kids. And I got this email from a journalist who I hadn't heard of before. It was Melanie Newman, and she was saying that she had an interest in a case where a mother's child had been placed for adoption, and the mother had appealed it, and very unusually had won her appeal. I mean, this almost doesn't happen, partly because people don't have the resources. I mean, it cost this mother £20,000 for the appeal. I mean, she was a woman of very modest means. Melanie wanted to report this case, and I think she'd been pointed in my direction by a barrister who knew what I did. It all just started with me kind of trying to help Melanie a bit with the process, and she was baffled by it, and I was like, yeah, it is totally, totally bewildering. The hearing was set for mid-October. And at the last minute, Louise decided to attend in person. I thought, OK, well, I'll pootle down to Portsmouth and go to court. It's always nice to, you know, see another journalist when you're freelance, you're Billy No Mates. So she made her way down to Portsmouth. I got to Portsmouth on an absolutely beautiful day. I remember taking a picture of Portsmouth and tweeting it. The courtrooms are all very plain, they're not grand. So it was just the parties, so that would have been the mum and her barrister and The Guardian, her barrister, and the local authority barrister. And then sat at the side were Louise, Melanie, and also a BBC journalist, Sancha Berg, who was working with Melanie to try and report the story for BBC Today programme. As they sat in proceedings, they heard how the council had quietly returned the girl to her mother, after three years apart. The journalists asked the judge if they could report on the outcome of the case. There seemed to be serious questions over what had happened here, and they thought it was in the public interest to publish them. But it wouldn't be that easy. There in the court, the judge laid out his decision on their request. A Kafkaesque tangle of logic. We wanted to be able to report what was already in the public domain in the Court of Appeal judgment, which had been published on Bailey last year, which is what Melanie had seen. Uh, and the court and the court went the judge went, no, um, you can't report the names of anybody. That was fine. Nobody ever wants to do that. You can't report the ages um, and you can't report the ethnicities. Uh, and 
and the, the names also included names of uh, the professionals who had been involved in the case originally, and they were all named in the Court of Appeal judgment. So effectively, he was saying, you can either report what's in the Court of Appeal judgment, or you can report what happened today, but you can't link the two. And so nobody who reads anything of this or hears it will understand what has happened to this family. Louise was shocked. Even with her knowledge of how restrictive family court reporting was, this seemed exceptional. We had all three of us stood up. We had all said what we wanted to do. We felt the public interest was very strong. And I think I drove back just on sheer anger and outrage. I was knackered by the time I got back. I was completely spent because I'd kind of gone through all the things that I was angry about and was thinking about what to do. I can't remember whether I tweeted or blogged something. I probably tweeted something that night and realised I had to delete the picture of Portsmouth because if I was going to write a blog about it, I knew that I was going to already be at risk of being in contempt of court just by saying what had gone on in the ancillary issues around us applying for reporting restriction orders because I wasn't going to mention anything about the meat of the case but the statute is really clear it's anything relating to proceedings and our application to report proceedings related to proceedings I had to anonymize the case as much as possible in any of my public communications at that point so that nobody could lay the charge that I was risking identifying the family. I was like, oh, get rid of that tweet of Portsmouth looking lovely. Uh, yeah, I was really cross. And I think it took me a few days and that's when I decided to, to appeal. So Louise has decided she's not going to stop. She's not going to accept the judge's orders about the total media ban on the case. She's going to try and appeal that decision. But that's tricky. The issues you have to think about when you appeal are that I mean, the biggest issue for somebody freelance is that there is a possibility you could be landed with costs if you lose. No matter how strong your case seems, I was advised by quite a few lawyers that, you know, the Court of Appeal is a tricky place. Things can come up. You can get swerve balls slung at you. And so nothing is certain, actually. So there was no knowing what could happen next. Louise managed to get pro bono legal support, but there were other costs involved too just to apply for permission to appeal, because you have to apply for permission first. That was £528. I had to pay for a transcript of the hearing in Portsmouth, which fortunately was only an hour. That ended up being £120. And I don't have, you know, a couple of grand just lying spare. (laughs) I had had tens of thousands of pounds worth of pro bono support. It has to be acknowledged that in order to fight for your human rights in this country... That is what it takes. And not everybody would be in the position to be able to call on lawyers who would be able and have the means to give generously of their time. It takes a huge amount of a lot of people's efforts to fight something that's been done wrong, wrongly. You know, the fact that it's in a private hearing makes it all the more difficult to fight. But any time you fight against the state, it does take a huge amount of resource from a lot of very expert people. Louise took to crowdfunding to cover the costs. I think I raised about 2,200 out of it, which sort of then paid people's travel costs to get to London. I mean, I was incredibly grateful for that because as a freelance, I didn't have anyone to fund it. I wasn't doing this for a story that was actually my story. That was the the weird thing. I was doing this in order to enable other people (laughs) to report. Finally, the day of the hearing came round. It was another beautiful day. <laughs> I got to London on a beautiful day. We got to the Royal Courts of Justice and it was kind of blue sky, and shiny white stone. And then you go in and it is grand. And we get to this court and it's 
wood panelling and dusty blue velvet drapes and lots of court staff. And then there were, th- there were three journalists in the, the little journalist pews at the front. And it sort of looked like a 17th century painting, you know, everybody all crowded in, all the journalists with their little notebooks. Joshua Rosenberg was there and, you know, loads of barristers. And I sat there and I thought, this is really funny because just me being cross that day helped to make this happen. <laughs> the minutes ticked by. It was listed for an hour. It went on, in fact, till quarter past 12, and I was kind of biting my nails by the end. But remarkably, the decision came down almost immediately. The judge walked back into court and announced his ruling. We got a decision on the day, not only that the reporting restriction order had been wrong, but we also got the thing which I wanted as much, which is that it shouldn't be so difficult for journalists to ask for permission to report matters which are so evidently in the public interest to understand. And so the president promised that day, sat up on his high bench wearing his, you know, gown and little yellow tab, that he would issue practice guidance, which is what the president does to kind of say to the courts, look, guys, you need to be doing this really. It's not law, but it's a very strong, "Mm, do this, to kind of explain how a court, a judge and the court staff and barristers need to approach it when a journalist makes that kind of application. And what was absolutely so lovely when it came out, it came out about two weeks ago, this this draft guidance, was that he had effectively just simply adopted everything that we had written in our submissions and had just kind of gone, right, we'll be having that then. And I was like, yes, we will. (laughs) We will be having that then. So now, because of Louise's tenacious work, there are new guidelines for family court judges about how they can and should work with journalists where appropriate. And things have gone further since. Sir James Mumby, who retired as president of the family division in 2018, recently described how reporting restrictions about private court matters like child custody or distribution of assets are, quote, hopelessly obsolescent and should be repealed. He won that cuts to legal aid for these kinds of cases meant people are left arguing in court without lawyers. And that's just exacerbated by the fact that journalists aren't present to flag when things go wrong. Louise Tickle continues to report on the family courts when she can, and she started crowdfunding her work into this. You can find and support her at patreon.com forward slash Louise Tickle. That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks so much to Louise for talking us through her great campaigning journalism. We'll have another episode for you soon. And if you have a second, we'd love it if you could leave us a quick review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. This episode was edited by Chica Ayres and our theme music is by Dice Muse. The episode was made possible thanks to support from the Charities Aid Foundation, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and our own Patreon supporters. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 